This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so very grateful for your Word that it, as the psalmist said, sheds light on our light. It is your light that illuminates the world around us, your creation, our lives, so that we may see life and the situations and circumstances of life for what they are that we may understand that we have a role and a function and a purpose within a greater plan, and that this plan was one that you formulated before there was ever the existence of any universe or any planet or any individual, and that it is a plan that is moving towards an ultimate conclusion in the future and the expression of your will perfectly, even here on earth, in your kingdom when it comes in the future. And as we study in Matthew, we see the emphasis on the kingdom, the emphasis on uh, the future of for, uh, preparation for that kingdom, and yet this is a concept that is often distorted, misunderstood, misrepresented. So we pray that we might have clarity this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and in the life of our Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, and we may go back and forth over to Luke a little bit, but I have that in the slide, so that will help us facilitate a little bit. So we come to Matthew chapter 3. We have concluded our study of the infancy uh, chapters on the life of Jesus. We've gone through the announcements related to his birth, his birth, the aftermath of his birth, and last week we studied uh, the events that surrounded his uh, presentation at the temple when he was 12 years of age as he began to go about his father's, his heavenly father's business. In the Gospel of Matthew, as in the other Gospels, there is silence from the time that he was 12 years of age and made that visit to Jerusalem to the temple until he appears on the scene following the uh, ministry of John the Baptist. That's the focus of uh, Matthew chapter 3, the ministry of John the Baptist. And in this section from, the, in fact, this entire chapter of uh, of of uh, Matthew 3 down through verse 17, the focus is on baptism. This is the main doctrine that's covered here, and we need to understand that because it is one of the most divisive doctrines uh, of Scripture uh, historically. 
there has been much bloodshed uh, over the doctrine of baptism, especially during the period of the Protestant Reformation, as the true doctrine of believers' baptism was being recovered, it was viewed as a threat not only to the uh, established church in terms of the Roman Catholic Church, but also the nascent Protestant Church is still held to a view of um, of a unity of church and state, and therefore entry into the church, which was symbolized by baptism, was also viewed as a as a civil statement of your loyalty to the state. And so when uh, Anabaptist, a term that simply means to be baptized again, because at that time most people had been baptized as an infant, and they came along teaching that the Bible uh, expresses that believers should be baptized at the time of their conversion, not as infants, that this was a second baptism, so they were called Anabaptists. And when they began to teach this from the Scripture, they were viewed as a political threat. It was a threat to the fact that that uh, uh, infant baptism was also seen as an initiation into uh, citizenship of, of the country because of the, the identification of church and state. In fact, this is one of of two things that make a Baptist a Baptist. Now, I know some of you come out of a Baptist background. I have, uh, over the course of my life, frequently asked Baptists and Baptist preachers. I did my internship when I was a student at Dallas Seminary at a Baptist church in Irving, Texas, and I would ask these, uh, ask my Baptist pastor friends who had their PhDs and D-mens, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? They would give me all kinds of answers. And usually one of the things that they would say made a Baptist a Baptist was that something about their belief in the Scriptures, their belief in Christ as Savior, but that's not what makes a Baptist a Baptist. It's interesting, I have an agnostic Jewish friend who's quite bright. He was actually introduced to me by one of the men who uh, was instrumental in founding this church, and they were up visiting us in Connecticut one year, and we were walking through a Baptist church, an old historic Baptist church in Mystic, Connecticut, and I turned to him thinking that I would uh, trump him on this, and I said, you know what makes a Baptist a Baptist? And he said, yes, they believe in baptism by immersion as, as a Christian, and they believe in the separation of church and state. That's it. Those two things make a Baptist a Baptist. I said, you know, most Baptists don't know that. And here you're this agnostic Jewish uh, doctor, and you know these things. It's amazing. That's what makes a Baptist a Baptist coming out of the Protestant Protestant Reformation. And because of that, there were wars. There were all kinds of civil wars during the uh, latter part of the Protestant Reformation, and blood was shed. There have been ecclesiastical uh, nonviolent uh, in terms of uh, physical warfare type wars, uh, and and churches have split over baptism. There were even different denominations that developed in the United States. They were called Dunkers, and they split. There were those who believed that you needed to be baptized three times, dunked three times forward. That was the mode. But for one time each for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But others felt that wasn't as holy as being baptized and going backwards. 
So you had the three times forward dunkers and the three times backward dunkers, and they got all mad at each other and split. So this has been an extremely divisive doctrine, and we need to go back to the Scriptures to recover what the Scripture actually teaches and some of the things it doesn't say anything about with regard to baptism. Baptism, as it was originally practiced in the early church, was a baptism, a believer's baptism by immersion. That's pretty easy to establish that, both historically and on the basis of the text of Scripture and the vocabulary used. But it wasn't long before that began to change. By the end of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century, uh, because there began to be to, uh, the development of allegorical interpretation and the confusion and identification of the church with Israel, all of a sudden baptism began to be compared to circumcision. Now, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision was part of the Mosaic covenant. Circumcision was an act that was to take place at the eighth day of a male, of the life of a male infant, as, and it had to do with the parents and the parents making a commitment to raise the son according to the Mosaic law. Baptism is not a commitment on the part of the parents. Baptism is a visible statement by an individual of his own faith, his own volition, his own relationship to Jesus Christ. But because of the influence of allegorical interpretation and this identification of Israel with the church, that, that slipped in. And then also because of that identification with Israel and the church, the theocracy of the Old Testament, you had in the development of what became known as the Roman Catholic Church, they began to develop priests. There's no mention of priests for the church in the, in the New Testament. Priestliness comes out of a, of an Old Testament background. So they're borrowing all of this stuff that they shouldn't be borrowing from uh, old, the Old Testament because they don't understand the distinction between, uh, between Israel and the church. Baptism was something that was introduced by Christ. That is, believer's baptism was something that was introduced by Christ, and it was by immersion. But by the 4th century A.D., uh, baptism had become uh, a rite for infants uh, done by sprinkling because you don't want to drown the poor little baby. And so they um, they simply did the sprinkling. And this was the normal mode of baptism up until the uh, Protestant Reformation and the development of the Anabaptist movement. And it's at that point historically that as uh, Protestants began to move back to a literal uh, interpretation of Scripture and a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture that more and more doctrines from the original church uh, began to be recovered. Now, to understand baptism, which is the background for this whole passage and its relationship to John's ministry and his proclamation of the kingdom, and that's the point in the first nine verses that we're introduced to the king's herald, John the Baptist, and his message, which is to prepare for the kingdom. And this is important. We have to understand this concept of kingdom as well, and kingdom and his baptism, John's baptism, which is not believer's baptism, uh, John's baptism was integrally related to his message to prepare for the kingdom which was near, and that is because the king was about to be on the scene. Now, there are two types of baptisms in the Scripture. 
They're called, we'll identify them as real baptisms because they're not ritual baptisms. Ritual baptisms have to do with a a ritual related to immersion in water, whereas a real baptism is something that takes place uh, in terms of identification, uh, but it is it is a real event uh, in the um, as opposed to just a ritual. Now, real baptisms don't involve ritual; they are real spiritual identifications that are made by God. And there are actually five, as we've studied this many times. There's the baptism uh, of Noah; those that were identified with Noah survived the flood. Those that did not were the ones that got wet. So you see, getting wet is not the idea in baptism. It's really identification. We have the baptism of Moses in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Then we're introduced in this chapter to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, uh, also in 1 Corinthians 12.13. We're also introduced to the baptism by fire in Matthew 3.11. And we're introduced to the... uh, And there's the baptism of Christ which is has to do with his baptism, his identification with our sin on the cross. Okay, this is different from Jesus' baptism, which is the one that's performed by John the Baptist. So we have those five real baptisms, and then we have three ritual baptisms. These do involve immersion, and it depicts some sort of identification. The object that is immersed is identified with something, and the picture is that is a picture with water of cleansing, of purification. It had there were several different kinds of of uh, uh, baptisms that occurred uh, in the Old Testament ritual, but these were usually washings or immersions that were done by a person for himself. If you go to Israel, you go outside the southern wall of the of the uh, of what was the Temple Mount. You see a number of these uh, uh, depressions that are called mikvah, and a mikvah was for ritual immersion. There's something like 30 or 40 of these uh, washing areas on the southern steps, and a person would simply walk down one side of the steps into the water, and then he would e- immerse himself and then walk out the other side, and it was a picture of cleansing. Ultimately, this is not just a picture, not just a ritual, but it was an identification with something new. And so the word baptism, even though its literal meaning is to dip or plunge or immerse, it signified something. It has not only the literal meaning, but it also has a metaphorical or symbolic meaning. And what it symbolized was entrance into a new stage of life, entrance into a, a new period of life, entrance into something that was new. And it indicated also a intrinsic change of character. Now, that's important to understand in terms of the background of baptism because we don't often hear that taught. But if we think about what we've learned on the baptism by the Holy Spirit, as Paul develops it in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and following, it's that spiritual identification with Christ on the cross that is part of the uh, destruction of the tyranny, the power of the sin nature over our lives. We still have a sin nature after we're saved, but that tyranny that the sin nature possessed prior to salvation is no longer there. We studied in Romans 6 that uh, prior to salvation, we were in bondage to sin. We were slaves to sin, 
at the point of our salvation, we get a new position in Christ, and we are now said to be slaves to righteousness, so that there is an ethical dimension to what happens with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're now identified with Christ so that we can live a new life in obedience to him. It's not just simply a matter of positional cleansing, but it is positional cleansing with a view towards a changed life. And this is important to understand because what we're going to see, just as a preview of coming attractions, in, in John's message, when he confronts the, the Pharisees uh, uh, in, by verse 8, he says that they are to bear fruit consistent with repentance. See, we usually don't emphasize the fact that that as a result of baptism, there's supposed to be a change. It's not going to, like the lordship crowd emphasizes, it's not an automatic or inevitable shift, but it is an ethical mandate. A, spirit, a new spiritual life should result. So ritual baptisms are, are visualizing for us something that is to transpire in the spiritual realm, in the non-visible realm, and it's emphasizing some sort of identification with a view towards a change in the object. Um, the term baptism, bapto, was a term that was used primarily in the fuller's art, in the fuller's industry, where they would take a raw cloth and first they would immerse it in bleach and bleach it so that it would be pure white, and then they would take it and they would immerse it in a dye so that the cloth is changed intrinsically. That's the imagery that is behind this word uh, of baptism. So it definitely implies or suggests that there's going to be a newness of life following baptism. Now, of the ritual baptisms, there are three. There's John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance because of the nearness of the kingdom of God. That was limited in time to the uh, period from John's uh, be- the beginning of John's ministry in approximately A.D. 29 until uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious establishment rejects Jesus' claims to be Messiah. And from that point on, this baptism for repentance for the kingdom is no longer in effect. Then there's the baptism of Jesus, which is unique. It's not the, Jesus was baptized by John, but Jesus did not receive the baptism of John because John's baptism involved repentance in relation to sin and Jesus as the Messiah, as the God man was not a sinner. He was perfect and therefore there, he did not have anything to repent of. There was no change there. Jesus' baptism was like the washing of the priest at the inauguration of his ministry. It was something Jesus uh, in his humanity submitted to as a public, visible identification with God's plan in his life to inaugurate his public ministry uh, on the earth. The third kind of baptism mentioned in the in the New Testament is the believer's baptism, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is commanded for every believer. This is not something that's really op- optional. Jesus doesn't make it optional. And every example we have of conversion in the in the book of Acts in the New Testament is always followed 
by believers' baptism. In the early church, this was never, they never would have thought of the idea that you could be saved and not baptized. Not that baptism conveyed any grace to you. Not that baptism makes you a better believer. Not that baptism does anything uh, in addition for you spiritually so that those who are baptized are not any more saved or any more spiritual than anybody else. But that this was a physical, visible symbol and, uh, and a representation of what transpired in the spiritual realm in terms of our baptism by the Spirit and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if, if baptism had been taught correctly historically and its significance taught in terms of its representation of the, um, of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, then we would have a lot less confusion about the spiritual life because people would actually understand how the power of the sin nature is broken at the point of our justification when the uh, when we are through baptism by the Holy Spirit identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So this is a point of baptism. Just as a side note, I've had two or three people ask me about baptism. So if you or you have children that uh, you believe they're ready to be baptized, uh, please let me know, and uh, we're working on setting up a baptismal service. We'll probably do what we've done in the past, go over to uh, Grace Bible Church. They have a baptist room. We'll go over there in the afternoon one day, and we'll have a baptismal service over there. Now, as we get into our passage, we begin in Matthew 3.1 with a, a very brief introduction to John's uh, arrival to the beginning of his ministry. Luke, the passage we read during scripture reading, gives us a bit more detail, and we'll reference that in just a minute. But Matthew gives us the abbreviated version, and he says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, it begins with the statement, in those days, which is a rather generic term for just just stating at a particular time John the Baptist came uh, preaching. It doesn't identify that time at all. So he just gives us a general statement related to the beginning. But Luke, who is much more concerned about historical detail and precision, Luke, who is writing not simply to the Jewish believers about the kingdom, but has a broader focus for his gospel in terms of uh, the salvation of all men and that the Messiah came not just for Israel, but for all men, gives us a little more detail. He locates this uh, chronologically for us, and this gives us a, uh, an idea of when John's ministry began. We don't have any kind of historical note like this in terms of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but there seems to be fairly close proximity in the arrival of Jesus to the beginning of John's ministry. And so we can ascertain from this when uh, when this ministry began. Now, he lists seven different rulers here, moving from the more uh, the, the broadest authority in terms of the Caesar, Tiberius, down to regional authorities. And when we date these different authorities, we can conclude that John's ministry began somewhere between A.D. 26 and A.D. 36. So we can be a little more specific than that because in the first verse, 
Luke tells us that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, it may surprise you to know that there are actually six different views as to when that occurred. And that's because people come up with different ways in which they counted uh, when a reign began and a reign uh, continued. And so there are uh, some schemes where the even if you only reign for a month in a given year, that whole year is considered the first year. There are others where that year, called the accession year, doesn't count at all. It's the next full year. Different things like that I won't go into, but it's according to Roman reckoning, uh, Tiberius became Caesar in August of 14. And so 15 years later would be 29. Now there, if you've ever, if you've been around Christianity very long, you know that there have been different people who've taken a, a 30 AD date for Christ's crucifixion, a 31, a 32, a 33. But it seems that the best solution is that Jesus had a ministry that lasted a little over three years and that he began his ministry, uh, when he's baptized by John the Baptist sometime in A.D. 29. So 15 years after Tiberius became Caesar would put us in A.D. 29, and this would be the beginning of his ministry. Tiberius was the uh, adopted son and successor of Augustus, and under his uh, reign, the empire begins its first slide. It had been in ascendancy through the reign of Augustus, and it begins to slide down from Tiberius on, not that it slid that much, but it is definitely a time that is marked by uh, power plays. It's, it's marked by some of the most extreme uh, re- sexual, sex-based religions that human history has ever seen. Uh, slavery was uh, prevalent throughout the Roman Empire, and there was nothing that protected the slaves, and they were treated quite brutally and cruelly. And there were many other things that were done in the Roman Empire that were that were quite horrible. So this is a time when there is, uh, uh, while there is political stability in terms of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, uh, it is it is a particularly brutal period of time uh, in which in which to live. And there was a hope for something better. The world religions and philosophies of that day were relatively hopeless in their uh, in their views of the future. We have uh, Tiberius Caesar mentioned, Pontius Pilate, who is called governor here, uh, which is a general term. The more precise term, uh, often people will read that he was a procurator, and actually the term procurator did not come into, uh, into usage for about another 15 years during the reign of Claudius Caesar in about in the mid-40s. The correct term at this point in history was that he was the prefect. Governor is just a general term that would include any of these other titles. Then we have two sons of Herod the Great who are mentioned. Herod died just not long after the birth of our Lord, and his kingdom was divided amongst his sons. Uh, his eldest son, Archelaus, received Judea and Samaria until he was banished in uh, AD 6. Herod Antipas inherited, uh, inherited Galilee. I have a, I thought I put a map in here this morning for us to look at. Nope, the map disappeared. Okay. They are in the, um, Galilee is in the north, uh, 
uh, Iteria and Trachonitis were a little bit northwest or northeast of Galilee, and Abilene was a district up in Syria. We can date the reigns of Herod Antipas and Philip uh, the Tetrarch. Tetrarch was just a, uh, a general title for a regional uh, ruler. We can date their rules. Uh, we don't have specific information on Lysanias, although his name is mentioned uh, in several uh, artifacts that archaeology has recovered. And then there's the mention of the two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. It's interesting that grammatically Luke uses a singular term. He doesn't say, uh, although the English translates it, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. That's inaccurate. The Greek uses a singular noun. They were high priests. And the reason is that as Rome dominated uh, the area of Judea, they kept a lid on any possible uh, insurrection or revolt, and they controlled the high priesthood. They allowed uh, Annas to be high priest for only nine years before they yanked him out. They tried two or three others as high priests before they uh, settled upon Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a good yes man, and so Caiaphas was high priest for about 15 years. But Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. And Annas was the real power behind the throne. According to the scripture, a high priest was appointed for life. So in the view of the people, Annas was still the high priest, whereas the Roman appointee Caiaphas was the functional high priest. And so Luke is actually being quite uh, quite correct and sly here when he refers to them both with the singular high priest. He's indicating his understanding of the political realities related to the uh, religious leadership at, at the time. It's at that time, historically, that John the Baptist came. Now, his, the name Baptist simply means he's the one who's known for baptizing. John the We could call him John the Immerser. Uh, John the Baptist, though, is how he's known. It's a noun form. And he came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Judea. Now, Matthew doesn't give us much more precision. He's just making a very general statement that John arrived on the scene, whereas Luke gives us the more detail that John's arrival on the scene wasn't generated by John's own volition. He didn't wake up one morning and say, okay, I think I'm going to go out and start uh, proclaiming a message. The word of God came to him. That means there was a revelation given to him that it was time for him to begin his his ministry. Luke tells us that while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, were the high priests, the word that is rhema, the two words in Greek translated with the English word word, logos is a broader word. It can mean a written word, a spoken word, but rhema means a spoken word. And so that tells us that John begins his ministry as a result of God giving him an audible revelation, audible command to begin his ministry. And he comes and preaching the word of God. Now, this is one of those uh, things. We studied this a little bit in our Acts study on Thursday night, that there are different words used to describe the uh, the ministry, the pulpit ministry of a pastor. One word is keruso. The other word is, another word is didasco. Didasco means to instruct, to explain, to teach. 
Keruso means to uh, proclaim, actually, to proclaim, to announce, or to herald something. And I ran across this quote the other day from Archibald Hunter in his work on the message of the New Testament where he comments that in the New Testament, the verb Keruso does not mean, quote, to give an informative or hortatory or edifying discourse expressed in beautifully arranged words with a melodious voice. This is how most people think of preaching, as a certain style, as a rhetorical style. And they're dead wrong. This is one way in which the modern church has perverted the scripture. He goes on to say, Caruso means to proclaim an event. It's not the format or the structure or the style. It means to proclaim an event, and it is different from teaching. Uh, it's, and so usually a what we call a sermon on a Sunday morning or any other time involves both, a proclamation of a truth as well as the explanation and instruction of the meaning of that truth. But preaching is is not what uh, the Southern Baptists at, at Umpty Dump Baptist Church does on Sunday morning, but people in Bible churches teach. That buys into a non-biblical use of those terms. And we have to be so careful about our vocabulary because we get sucked into using biblical phrases in non-biblical ways by our culture and by the dumbed-down uh, Christian culture that, that we're a product of. So preaching simply means he's proclaiming an event, as I have translated this in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came proclaiming an event in the wilderness. Now, now I don't know about you, but when I read this when I was a kid, I was into Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and all of those kinds of heroes back in the day. And you think of the wilderness as a forest. This isn't a forest. This is really should be translated desert because that's what this area of Judea looks, looked like at the time. It's, it's, it's scrub growth at best, and it's out in the desert. It's on the fringe of civilization. John has to come to the desert because he doesn't come to Jerusalem or the temple, the center of Judaism at that time, because the legalism of the religious leaders at that time has basically removed truth and the word of God from the temple and from Jerusalem. And it has been removed to the desert. And so John comes in the desert, not to the religious leaders, not to the temple, not to the religious structures, because they are in complete apostasy at that time. He has to go out into the desert, and it is the religious leaders that we see that come to him. Now, he has a message, a very brief message summary in verse 2, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent is a word we've studied before in detail. It's the word meta. Noeo, metanoeo, and unfortunately this word it was translated into English with the word repent, which does a tremendous disservice to John the Baptist and his message because the English word repent has the idea of being sorry for something, having a certain amount of remorse for something, and it, it derives from the Latin word uh, repentant, 
which has that same notion of being sorry for your sin. But that's not what this word emphasizes. That's another Greek word, metamelomai. But metanoeo, the word noeo, comes from a noun nous, meaning the mind, and it refers to a change of thinking or a change of attitude. It's not talking about being sorry for sin, but a change of attitude towards the message of God. So John isn't calling on the people to have remorse or to be sorry, but to change their thinking and their mental attitude in relation to the word of God and to turn from disobedience to obedience. In fact, the word repent really has, there's no one English word that captures the meaning of the Greek word, but it goes back to a message that's given in the Old Testament. Remember, the background for what John is doing is the Old Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, this is a passage we've studied quite a bit, that in Deuteronomy 28, as in Leviticus 26, God warned the Israelites through Moses that there would come a time when they would turn away from God and that they would worship false gods. When they did that, God promised a series of judgments that would come upon them, five series or cycles of judgment that God would bring upon them, and the most severe of which would be that God would remove them from the promised land. In other words, their continued uh, th- their continued uh, residence in the land God promised was based on their ethical behavior, their spiritual obedience to God. Now that's important also to understand for where I'm going and where John, where Matthew goes in the next few chapters. This is why he says to the Pharisees uh, that they must uh, bear fruit that's consistent with repentance. Just turning to God and saying, okay, I'm now going to worship God and going through the formalities of religion, or, the, or excuse me, the, Roma, the, the formalities of, of, of faith isn't enough. There has to be a change internally and obedience. This is why God says it to the Israelites that if you don't conform in your moral, ethical, spiritual obedience to the law, then you're going to be removed from the land. It's not just enough to go through the external formalities, which is what the Pharisees emphasized. And so uh, in both Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, there is the warning that God will eventually remove them from the land and scatter them to the four corners of the earth, to all the areas, all the continents, all the nations of the earth. And then there would come a time, though, when the people would eventually Turn back to God. This is the Hebrew word shuv, and that's the counterpart to metanoeo, meaning to turn. So in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, we read God saying, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, that's those series of judgments he warned them about, and the curse or judgment which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return, you teshuvah in the Hebrew, you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Notice it's not just a turn, it's an obedience as well. When you turn and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, then God, it goes on to say God will restore them to the land. This is the message we hear in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, the message of the prophets. 
Joel uh, is speaking in Joel 2.12. The Lord speaks and says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me. There's that word again, shuv. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Then there'll be a restoration. Isaiah 55.7 uh Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Teshuvah again, shuv, to turn back to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, that is, forgive sin. What we have in the text of, of Matthew 3 is John baptizing for the remission of sin. Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, says the Lord. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And then in verse 15, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, walks in the statutes statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. This is not talking about eternal life or eternal death. This is talking about living and enjoying all the blessings in the land. That is based upon an assumption that the people would walk in obedience. Walk in disobedience, and God's eventually going to kick you out of the land. So the message that 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 John is giving is one that resonated with the Jews if they understood the Old Testament messages of the prophets, the last of which is John. And he says, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is where we get into an understanding of the kingdom. There are a lot of distortions on the kingdom. People think there's a spiritual form of the kingdom, that the kingdom is inside you, uh, all of these other things that don't do justice to the text of Scripture. What, this, what John is announcing is something very simple, and that is that the, the Davidic kingdom that was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament is here. God's going to give it to you now on the condition that you turn to him and walk in obedience. This is the time. It is here if you will accept it. That's the message. And when they heard the term kingdom of heaven, they knew exactly what was being talked about. This was a term that's used in the Aramaic portion of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Now, one of the re- there are four reasons why we think that this is the promised Davidic kingdom. First of all, both John and Jesus assumed that the people know what they're talking about when they showed up. They don't ever explain it. They assume that the people know from the Old Testament exactly what the kingdom is that they're proclaiming. Second, they only give this message to Israel. This isn't a message that goes to the Gentiles. When Jesus sends out his disciples in uh, Matthew chapter 10, he says, only go to the house of Israel. Uh, Third, we see that the disciples later on expect a literal kingdom. In Matthew 20, Verses 20 and 21, they ask questions in relation to a literal kingdom, and they understand it as a literal kingdom. And then after the crucifixion, resurrection, and the Lord is teaching them for 40 days, Acts says, Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And right before the ascension, they said, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? They understand it as a literal, physical kingdom. And then last of all, in the passages that we're talking about in the early parts of the Gospels, 
the kingdom can't be identified as the church because the church hasn't been announced yet. The church hasn't been instituted yet. The church doesn't, uh, there's no indication of a coming church age or church or something different from the Jewish people until uh, late in Christ's ministry, and there's only a hint. It's not really revealed until after the ascension. So this must be the prophesied Davidic kingdom. Now, there's also confusion about the terminology, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. Some of you have been around long enough to have been taught by some pastors, perhaps, that the kingdom of heaven refers to one thing and the kingdom of God referred to something else. This is completely false. This was typical of a lot of dispensational teaching in the early to mid part of the 20th century. However, it's a failure to uh, properly observe usage of the terms. Only Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. He uses it 31 times. Only Matthew uses it. In parallel passages in Luke and Mark, the phrase kingdom of God is used. Only Matthew uses the term kingdom of God, and he uses it only four times. Now, when you read in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is, and you read the same event in Luke, and it says the kingdom of God, there's a reason for that. Matthew is an observant Jew who is being sensitive to the sensibilities of his Jewish readership who don't want to use the, the, the name of God. And so it was typical in that age to substitute heaven for God just as today. If you go to a synagogue and they're reading scripture and they can't come to the name Yahweh in the scripture, they will read either Hashem or Adonai. They don't pronounce the name of God, This is, but it means the same thing. Kingdom of heaven was a term that referred to the kingdom of God and was popular among the rabbis and the rabbinical literature at that time, and it meant the same thing as the kingdom of God. In the other Gospels, only the term kingdom of God is used in Mark, Luke, and John. It's used 47 times total, 31 times in Luke. 14 times in Mark, and interestingly, only two times in John. The phrase kingdom, just the word kingdom by itself, is used 19 times in Matthew, obviously always a reference to the kingdom of of, uh, heaven. It's used only four times in Mark, 13 times in Luke, and one time in John. Notice John only uses kingdom of God twice and kingdom once. The other gospels talk about the kingdom of a lot. Any idea why? John writes his gospel approximately 90 A.D. Temple's been destroyed since 70. Kingdom is not being offered anymore. The kingdom is not an issue anymore after the temple is destroyed. So John barely mentions it. Uh, Only in the um, episode in John 3 with uh, Nicodemus and, and one other place does he use the terminology. So kingdom of God... Therefore, uh, is the same as kingdom of heaven. They both refer to the literal physical rule of Messiah upon the earth. Matthew uses the term kingdom of God four times, and it's to stress the divine character of the kingdom. Uh, when he uses the term kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies in the Old Testament. When the four times he uses kingdom of God, he uses that to specifically stress the divine character of the kingdom. Now Matthew 3, 3 and 4 is a quote, or Matthew 3, 3 rather is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, to indicate that, that John is the fulfillment 
of the prophecy in Isaiah 40 verse 3 that there would be a, there would be an advance man for the Messiah. Just as today, if the president travels anywhere or uh, the Queen of England travels anywhere or Prince William travels anywhere, there's always an advance team that goes to prepare things and to make sure that uh, checking all the traffic patterns, make sure that everything is secure, that kind of thing. Well, John the Baptist is the advance team for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the king, and he comes announcing the coming of the king and to prepare his way and to make his path straight. He's unique in his dress and his diet, Matthew 3, 4. He's similar to Elijah in the Old Testament, and he is identified later as the one who would be the fulfillment of the prophecies that Elijah would return if Israel had accepted the Lord. So there's a definite identification. We'll talk about that later uh, between John and uh, Elijah, the prophet's ministry in the Old Testament. He's an outdoorsman. He lives out in the desert. He dresses in a camel's hair, uh, camel's hair clothing. He has, has just a broad leather belt wrapping around his waist, and he eats off of the land. He eats locusts, which according to Leviticus was the food of the poor, and wild honey. Uh, Isaiah 43 through 5 is cited, either one or all of them are cited by the gospel writers to indicate that, that John is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So he goes out and he begins to preach and proclaim the kingdom, and there's a response. People in Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, here's a picture of the modern Jordan. have a problem with the modern Jordan down near uh, Jerusalem and Jericho because so much water gets siphoned off for irrigation that, that it even threatens to run dry in places. So people go and they expect the mighty Jordan like the mighty Mississippi, and they're a little disappointed because at some places it's just a trickle. But this place has been overhauled recently and is now under the oversight of Israel National Parks, and so they do have a location there, but they warn people not to get baptized there because there's so much uh, what, what's there runs off from uh, the agricultural areas is pretty polluted and everything, so you don't want to uh, get baptized at that part of the Jordan. Now, he's baptizing them. This is the word we've studied already this morning, which means to immerse them in the water. And they're confessing their sins, which means that as they come, they are confessing their sins and they are making a public statement that they are identifying with the new ethic of the king and the kingdom, that they want to be spiritually prepared for the coming kingdom. They are turning away from religion, turning away from the false gods and idols they worshiped or the atheism that they practiced, and they are turning to uh, the truth of Scripture. But in the midst of the group, there are several different other groups, as uh, Luke mentions, but among them is a, is a advanced team of Pharisees and Sadducees. According to the custom of the Jews at the time, whenever anything significant happened uh, religiously that sort of uh, inflamed the people or got their interest, the, there was a team of investigators that were sent out by the, uh, by the Sanhedrin to determine if there was something significant going on because there was such a heightened sense 
of a messianic expectation at this time. And so these Pharisees and Sadducees are not coming to be baptized. They are coming to his baptism to investigate what is going on. And he calls them a brood of vipers. Now, this word brood means the offspring of vipers, as it were, the seed of vipers. And I think that there is a a hint here that takes us back to Genesis 3.15. When God announced to the serpent his judgment, and this is the first indication of, of the gospel, God said, I will put enmity between your, you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, that is, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head, that is, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent on the head, a fatal wound. And you shall bruise his heel. As we've studied, this would also be a fatal wound from a poisonous uh, snake. And indeed it was, because the seed of Satan uh, killed the Lord Jesus Christ. However, he had victory over death at the resurrection. So there's an indication here, uh, an allusion to the uh, to the Genesis 3:15 prophecy. And then John says, "Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" Wrath to come is a reference to the Old Testament teaching on the day of the Lord that before the messianic kingdom would come, there would be this tremendous conflagration and assault and centered in Israel, and it was only the return of the Lord that would rescue and deliver uh, the Israel from all the things that were happening during the day of the Lord. And so John addresses the gut of his message to the Pharisees in verse 8. He says, therefore, bear fruit. Actually, this is uh, should be a singular Bear fruit is how it's uh, in the English. It's not a plural noun. It's a singular noun. And he says that you are to produce fruit. The word is poieo, which means to make or to produce or to work. Fruit that is worthy of repentance, that is consistent with repentance. He's not saying repentance will necessarily and inevitably produce fruit so that you can tell if you've truly repented because you'll have true fruit. He's not saying that. That's that's the error and the heresy of lordship salvation. What he is saying is you can have a legitimate repentance, but the next day go, you know, I don't know what I did yesterday. I'm, I'm just going to cave into my, all my lust patterns and go back to the old way of life. And John is saying that if you repent, you need to then continue to be consistent with that change and carry out a lifestyle that is consistent with your change of mind. You need to stick with that. But, of course, this is not what would happen with the Pharisees. They were not interested in internal change, only external change, because they had a belief that anybody who was a descendant of Abraham just automatically got ushered into the kingdom, and they would be the automatically the Jews would be the aristocrats in the Davidic kingdom. But John corrects them and says, don't think that that just because Abraham is your father that that you're automatically going to get in. Because I say to you at the end, uh, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So the challenge to the Pharisees is don't just have an external form of religion and religiosity. There has to be an internal change. And this has application to us because the same message is true for the church. 
uh, for Christians, that it's not, the Christian life is not just a life of formality. It's not just a life of going through the motions. It's not just a life, a life of saying, yeah, I've trusted in Christ, so I'm going to go to heaven. But it, it, there is a, there is a responsibility incumbent upon us as members of, new members of God's family that we are to walk in obedience, that we are to live an obedient life, not in our power, but in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 16, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So repentance is necessary in the sense of changing one's mind. But it is something that also goes on in our everyday life because it's so easy that we get distracted by our sin nature, and we start pursuing the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and we get away from it. But the Scripture constantly calls us back to a life of obedience that we should bear fruit through the Holy Spirit in light of the new direction of our life, not because that's what saves us, but because that is what honors and glorifies God, and that's where we find real, true life. If we follow our sin nature, it leads to temporal death, carnality. It leads to self-induced misery. It leads to divine discipline. But we need to turn, just as God commands again and again, and consistently walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study through this portion of Scripture, to be uh, reminded of what a dramatic, wonderful event it must have been when the Lord Jesus came to John the Baptist to be reminded of the, what a event it was for this this very unusual man uh, to be out in the desert uh, proclaiming this this unique message uh, regarding the kingdom and how um, people flocked to him, uh, many just out of curiosity, but many out of a desire to to because they realized that the uh, lack of a relationship with you. Uh, led to an emptiness of life, that they recognized that a failure to um, uh, have a personal relationship with you was inadequate, that simple external formalism, simple external morality wasn't good enough. There needed to be an internal transformation. And, Father, we recognize there's a challenge for us in that as well. We thank you for what you've revealed here, and we pray that if there's anyone uh, here this morning who's unsure of their eternal life, unsure of their eternal destiny, that you would make that clear to them this morning, that they would understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He died for the sins of the world, and that all we have to do is trust in him. We don't have to change. We don't have to uh, feel sorry for our sins. We don't have to do anything else. We simply trust in him and the fact that he died for our sins and we have eternal life. We pray that you would make these things very clear to us as we reflect upon the message this morning. In Christ's name, amen.